Well, like I said, we're beginning this study of James, this 10 weeks together. We're beginning this morning, uh, this New Testament book. And so we're going to dive right in. If you flip your bulletin over, you'll have the beginning of James chapter 1 in your bulletin. If you have your Bible, you can open that up. We'd love for you to do that as well. If you're like, where's James? Because it's so short and you can flip past it pretty quickly. It's right toward the end of the New Testament. But James chapter 1 verse 1 goes like this. James, a servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations... Greetings. Okay, well, the first question should be, who is this James? Who's this guy that's writing this letter? Well, James was most likely the half-brother of Jesus. Tradition tells us that, uh, and the scriptures actually imply this as well in places like John 7 and Mark 6, that James wasn't a follower of of Jesus in Jesus' lifetime. It was after Jesus' resurrection that James, Jesus' half-brother, became a follower of Jesus. Now, I don't know if for some of you in this room, you, you, you grew up in the church and you've been a follower of Jesus as long as you can remember, and I'm so thankful that that's the case. But some of you maybe came to faith and trust in Jesus a little later in life, maybe like my, myself. And if you wonder, like, I don't know if that story is kind of good enough, or maybe I should be ashamed of that story. Well, some of the gospel writers, Jesus' own brother who lived with him and saw him, didn't become a follower until later. And so we're in good company. But after James became a follower of Jesus, after the resurrection, he rose to leadership pretty quickly. In fact, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the original church, the the epicenter, ground zero of where the church grew from. He became the leader of that church after Peter leaves. It talks about that in Acts chapter 12. And so James, this leader of the Jerusalem church, this epicenter of Christianity in the first century, writes to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, essentially this Jewish church convert to Christianity, who is now a leader, is writing to Jewish converts to Christianity in Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem as well. In situations that could be difficult, depending on where they were in the world, their following of Jesus would have been not received well. And so there was some persecution, some trial that was part of being a follower of Jesus in those days. And so James is writing to the church. And he writes this around 40 A.D., well within the, the time of, of eyewitness accounts of Jesus, just a couple years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so it's one of our earliest windows into Christianity, one of our earliest letters, and actually dispels this idea that, that Christianity, or at least the Bible, grew over time, maybe after years and generations of the legend of Jesus growing, then they wrote it down, and that's what we have today. It really dispels that rumor. Much was written just in and around the time of eyewitnesses of Jesus, so when they were writing, it could have been debunked quickly if it weren't true. So over the next 10 weeks, we're, we're going to dive into this book of James, and before we do, it's often helpful to understand what the Bible is as a whole before you dive into and and look at any specific piece of it. So let me take just a moment and talk about what the Bible is as a whole, because it's a a collection of writings, not all written at the same time, not all written by the same author. It's actually a lot of years and a lot of authors, and, and and it's edited together, and that's what we have as the scriptures. And there's a lot of different genres of literature in the scriptures, literature that would have been very common in the 
days of its writing. So we have things like historical documents, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua that we looked at last week. These tell the account of history. History documents from the time that writing became a, a popular form of communication. People were writing histories to try to remember. There are law documents like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These are meant to help govern and guide a people. In this case, specifically the people after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. But law documents were very common in ancient Mesopotamia. There's wisdom literature, truth that will help you live your life. Proverbs is an example of that. There's poetry in the scriptures, the Psalms. There's apocalyptic writing or uh, writing about the end of times. Revelation is a good example of that. But again, this was a common form of literature. When John was writing Revelation around 90 AD, there was a lot of end times apocalyptic literature that was out there. There's gospels in, 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 the, in the scriptures. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the account of Jesus' life. But again, very common because every Roman emperor or high official would have had a gospel written about them to tell of their tales. Uh, Alexander the Great had a gospel written about him. So in many ways, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are the antithesis of those types of gospel. They tell the true good news. And then there's epistles, letters. So this is essentially opening up someone's mail and reading them. It was correspondence between people that cared for each other, and we get a window into that. Those are all contained in the Bible, and they're all to be read differently. So for the text, the Bible to be taken seriously, we, we have to uh, do the work of not reading it all the same way. For example, we don't read Psalm 95 and says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. We don't read that and say, Oh, we have to take that literally, so we should start worshiping rocks. No, that's a weird thing to do. We recognize that it's poetic language because it's contained there, but not all language is poetic in the scriptures. And so it's important to parse that out before we begin. So what is the book of James? Well, the book of James fits squarely in that tradition of Jewish wisdom literature. And there was a lot of Jewish wisdom literature. We have the Proverbs and James in the scriptures. And so it's concerned with actual living, living wisely in light of what Jesus has brought into the world. Now that Jesus has come to live and love and die and rise again, how are we supposed to live now? And again, it's like it was written a week ago, not 2,000 years ago. It is practical life truth for us today. In fact, a lot of people call it the New Testament Proverbs. And so James, in the opening of this practical wisdom document to the churches, he calls himself a bondservant, or actually the best interpretation is slave of God. And that makes some sense because of what he's going to call us to over the next 10 weeks as we study this together, it's, it's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take moving off of putting ourselves at the center and moving more to being God-centered and therefore others-centered. Interesting to note, if you really want to dig into James, if you read it parallel to the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, where Jesus talks about this society, this beautiful society that we all dream about, they would read parallel to each other. James is talking about doing the hard work of ushering in God's kingdom into the world. And so he talks about things like, how do you make wise decisions? How do, you, how do you talk to people? How do you move away from things that hurt you? How do you care for others? How do you not become cynical in a world that's kind of messed up? Very practical things that matter, not just inside this room, but outside of it as well. So I'm excited about what we're going to look at over the next 10 weeks. But James chapter 1, in the opening of his letter, he doesn't seem to deal so much with the 
practicals of, of the decisions that you're going to make. He actually looks at how are you going to make decisions. What's going to guide you in making decisions? And so after the greeting, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Right out of the gate, James hits us with something that maybe we weren't ready for. And that's how it is with James. It's going to be like this for the next 10 weeks. He's going to hit us again and again with these really kind of hard-hitting things. That's how he starts. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. How's that? How are we going to be able to do that? My youngest son, uh, who is six, is going through a trial right now. And one that you might consider to be the most difficult kind of trial for a rambunctious, energetic six-year-old. He's going through the process of recovering from a broken leg. He, he fell, nothing spectacular about how he fell, which is really strange because everything he does is spectacular, but this was very average. He just fell down and broke his tibia, and I would show you the x-ray, but it's gross, and so just trust me, he broke his tibia. And uh, this was four days after we moved into our new house, so we, we just moved, and the whirlwind of that, and we are like, cool, we can settle in, and then broken leg. And he had a cast up to here. So this six-year-old can't walk, no weight, no pressure on his leg for eight weeks. Now, eight weeks sounds like an eternity to a child. And so he would ask questions like, I get to walk today? Do I get to walk today? And it's like, no, you get to walk in 47 days. No, you get to walk in, you know, 112 days. No, you don't get to walk yet. And so he was really having trouble with this. So Abby and her genius uh, said, let's make a craft because crafts make everything better. And so uh, here's what she did. She made a chain for every day. You see his gap tooth smile. He's losing his teeth too. Uh, it's great. And, and we didn't even stage those crutches. That was just, that's where they are. Just if you were wondering, like, this seems like a prop. Um, that's real. He can't put weight on it. And so he gets to take a link of the chain off every day. And it's helping him see, oh, okay, the days are going away. It's, it's helpful. But a couple of days into him having this broken leg, he, uh, he, at bedtime, he, he looks at us and he says, <laughs> it's really tough to deal with. He says, he says Am I, I wish I could walk again. And then he looks at us in the eye and he goes, will I ever walk again? Which is like really hard to hear from this sweet six-year-old. Um, and he's been a trooper through all of this, but he really didn't know. He's like, am I ever going to walk again? Because that's how it is with kids. They don't have a, a broad frame of reference. So they, whatever they're dealing with in that moment, this must be how it is forever. This is the new normal. This is what I'm going to have to deal with forever. And he didn't have a frame of reference for getting through it. And so he was faced with a choice. He could either say, this is how it always is. This must be how it's always going to be. Or he could take our word for it. He could, he could choose to trust that we have a broader perspective and that we're trustworthy. And when we say it won't always be like this, we will move through it together. What James seems to be saying in the beginning of, of chapter 1 here, the beginning of his, of his letter to these Christians that are scattered, is it's the same with us. We can say this is how things are always going to be, or we can choose to say, I'll trust the Father. I'll trust that he has a broader perspective on what's going on, and, and, I'll, and I'll move forward accordingly in his trust. I'll borrow his words. I'll trust him for who he is. He says it this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He'll give generously to all without finding fault. It'll be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. 
because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Skipping down to verse 12, because we'll cover 9, and 11, uh, 9 through 11 in the next couple of weeks. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What James is saying here is that, that perseverance in the face of trial, being able to make it through, seems to be as much about position as it is provision. Perseverance in the face of trial is as much about position as it is provision. Because we can think, okay, I'll, I, I can endure. I can get through. I can, I can make it through this trial. I'm going through a thing, and I can make it. I can, I can white-knuckle it even for a long time if I need to. As long as I get what I want in the end, everything will be okay. I'll keep moving that direction. I can endure. But James seems to be saying that that, that perseverance isn't what he, he, he's talking about. He's talking about something that has to do with where we are positioned, not just provision. Right? Perseverance for the sake of provision means if I get what I want, everything will be fine. And there's actually a psalm that might help us understand a little bit of, of James' perspective here, this idea that, that perseverance is about position, not provision. Psalm 23, we, we sang a song that alluded to it earlier, and James, as a, as a Jew by heritage, uh, would, have, would have known Psalm 23 really well. He, he, would have, he would have read it often, he would have had it memorized, he probably would have recited it daily in his practices, um, and it very likely would have shaped his thinking and, and his writing. And so Psalm 23 begins this way. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lay down in green pastures. And as it is with the scriptures, context means so much. For us to understand what it means for us today, oftentimes it's most helpful to understand what it meant when it was first written. And so we'll do that now. Let me show you a picture. This is a picture of the Negev region or the Negev Valley in Israel, south of, of Jerusalem. This is what's described in the Old Testament as wilderness, midbar. But it's also described as green pastures. It's a little hard to see that that's green pastures. See, because I'm from the Midwest, Indiana specifically, and for me, I know what a green pasture is. I've driven up Interstate 65. It's a straight line for about four hours. I mean, 65 is like you got to have your music on and, and your, your Red Bulls or whatever, because it is a straight line, and it is green pastures the whole way. Alfalfa about this high, waving in the breeze as far as the eye can see, provision that goes on forever. So the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lay down in green pastures. I get that. And if my image is waist-high alfalfa, what the psalmist is saying is God will take you to a place where you'll never need anything ever again. I mean, nothing. You'll have provision forever and ever and ever and ever. You could never get through all that he'll provide for you. You never need anything, including him, ever again. That's where God's going to drop you. If that's the picture of green pastures, that's what we begin to think. And if that's what we think, that's the picture of what green pastures means, we'll maybe start to think things like, well, I haven't made it to that place yet. I mean, I, I don't have all I need. I don't have total independence and security, and, and I find myself imperfect sometimes. So what's wrong with God? He must be a liar. 
He hasn't delivered me from this struggle that, I, that I'm going through, the, the struggling with this thing that hurts me and hurts others. What's wrong with him? I still don't have a job that validates who I am, or maybe I did get that job that I thought was going to validate who I was, and I realized I just didn't arrive at validation. Life isn't easy, God. What is wrong with you? Or what's wrong with me, God? Because where are my green pastures? And if we think of green pastures this way, this way as this place where God will drop us off or we'll never need anything ever again, it will lead to a skewed picture of either of self one way or the other, either of an inappropriately high view of self or an inappropriately low view of self. We'll either say things like, God, you promised. Where's my provision? I deserve this. Or we'll say, I guess I'm not worth it. I guess God's busy loving other people, and I guess he doesn't have time to love me. So if green pastures, waist-high alfalfa is what we see when we hear, the Lord is my shepherd, he'll lean me to green pastures. If it's safety and security and comfort and independence, and that becomes the goal of life, and it's backed by what we believe is a God-ordained right to have those things, we're going to miss out on a lot. A lot of what the scriptures call us to. And we certainly won't pursue the types of things that James over the next nine weeks is, is going to call us to. Like why would we ever move toward difficult conversations if safety and security and independence is what God has promised me? I'm not going to move toward that. Sacrificing my time for the sake of others? No way. Speaking words that encourage others forward, even if they're challenging? Mm-mm. Not if that's our picture of green pastures. But if James read Psalm 23 differently in his context, and we're willing to read it the same way, maybe we will move toward the types of things that he'll call us to. In the culture of Psalm 23, in the culture that James was writing in, pastures didn't look like endless fields of, of green. Sheep grazed here. Because the thing is, you would never want them in your farmland. Farmland was for food for people, so you wouldn't want sheep eating all of that up. So shepherds would take their sheep south to the Negev region. That's green pastures. Well, you may wonder, okay, well, but how? How, how is that green pastures? Well, let's zoom in just a little bit. That's it. That's the green pastures. Small tufts of green that, that grow up around rocks in this very treacherous Region. That's the green pastures. There's a very small amount of rain that, that hits this region, not much, but a little bit every year. And then in the evening in particular, off of the Mediterranean Sea, humidity will blow through from the sea breezes and water will condense around rocks. It will fall down into the soil and little green tufts will grow up around them. So that's green pastures. In the desert, the shepherd will get you what you need for right now. Ten minutes from now, there'll be a journey, and you trust him. You trust him for what comes later. He'll get you what you need right now. A year from now, trust the shepherd. He'll take you where you need to go. And so how you're full, how you're satisfied is you eat a little. If you're a sheep, you eat a little, and then you move. You trust the shepherd. You move forward, and you eat a little, and you eat a little, and you move on, and you move on until you have enough. Position relative to the shepherd is how you're satisfied in the desert. One Jewish rabbi once said, worry is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pastures. 
C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain said, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but he will not encourage us to mistake them for home. You know what's at the heart of every temptation that we face? At the heart of every temptation we face is really, do we believe that we graduate from the need for God? If you're a sheep out in the green pastures and you say, you know what, I don't need the shepherd, that's bad news. And that's really at the heart of every temptation we face. That was the first temptation, Adam and Eve in the garden. The temptation was, do we trust God as the one who will lead us, or do we choose our own way? And it is at the heart, it's the source of every struggle and every choice that we make. And so James says, ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom about how to endure these trials. But the type of wisdom that James is encouraging us to ask for is the wisdom to trust the shepherd. Give us enough wisdom that we'll follow the shepherd. So how do we do that? When I ask my kids, uh, to, to, or when they ask me for something, and I say no, or I say not now, how do my kids hear me? Do they hear me as someone who uh, is withholding from them, doesn't want the best for them, laughs at them when they don't get what they want sometimes because I'm a bad dad? Or do they hear me as a loving father who wants the best for them and sometimes no is what's best for them and sometimes not now is what's best for them? How do they hear me? I told you we recently moved into our new home and uh, then four days later, Joseph broke his leg. But at our new home, there's this ginormous cactus out front. And uh, I don't know why you would ever have a cactus at your house, let alone a ginormous one, but that's what we have. And so we haven't cut it down yet. And so we've told our kids, hey, don't go touch the cactus. I know normal people don't have cactus, cacti at their house, but we have a cactus. So don't touch it because uh, cactus can hurt you. They have little prickly things, quills, or that's porcupines, but whatever you call the things that get you on a, on a cactus, don't touch it. So our cactus is a little bit different looking because it looks very smooth. And there's maybe a couple little quills that you can see or whatever. But for the most part, it looks smooth. And so one of my children, who I won't name, uh, he or she came to us and said, uh, what about this cactus? It doesn't seem to have any quills. And we said, that's the tricky thing. It doesn't look like it does. But if you touched it, you'd have a lot of little quills in your hand. And, and they'd be hard to get out because they'd be only, they're so small. So it's actually a little bit more dangerous than the one with the big spike. So please don't touch the cactus. 11 and a half seconds later, this child comes into the house rubbing his or her hand like this. So we say to him or her, what, uh, what's going on with your hand? Nothing. Ooh, story of my life, guys. <laughs> Nothing. Okay, I feel like you touched the cactus. Did you touch the cactus? Yes, I touched the cactus. Why? Simple question, why did you touch the cactus? We just, uh, 10.25 seconds ago, told you don't touch the cactus. Why did you touch the cactus? He or she says, because I thought you were wrong. <laughs> right, it's silly, it's crazy, right? You don't touch cacti, obviously, but, and so it seems like this crazy thing, but how often do we do that? How often do we say, God, I thought you were wrong? I mean, I heard, I heard what you said. I just, I thought you were wrong. I, I trusted you up to the point where I needed you, and then after that, I figured I got it. I'll kind of take care of it on my own. 
I know, I know, I know you said love your neighbor as yourself, but, but what about me? Yeah, yeah, I know you said you'll never leave me nor forsake me, but honestly, I felt lonely, so I'm pursuing this relationship even though I know it's not really all that healthy. I got this. I know you said that I'm loved, that I, that I matter, that, that my identity is in you, and, and you came to live and love and die and rise again just for me. I know you said that, but I needed to feel valuable, so I've been pursuing stuff to validate me, to kind of prove that I've got it all together. Or maybe that thing that drove you to the cross in the first place is now causing shame because you can't get over it and you just can't seem to defeat it, and now it's actually pulling you away from the cross. So you say, you know what, maybe I'll just go it alone. And if you're there, if you're feeling like you've reached this point where you don't need him, I promise you, you are not where you're made to be. So what James is saying and what David is saying in Psalm 23 is that perseverance is is really intimately linked to trust. Trusting in the good shepherd for provision and direction. Perseverance is saying, I'll trust God with what comes next because Going with what comes next without him is not a better alternative. Even if it means I don't understand the whole course or the whole path or it's not all laid out for me, I'll take my next right step. I'll trust provision for today and then I'll get up tomorrow and I'll ask for it again. Perseverance that's being talked about here is movement in the right direction relative to the good shepherd. Because here's the thing, the trial in and of itself the temptation, the hardship, it doesn't make us better. Being near the God of love and joy and peace makes us better. That's what makes us better. And lest we ever forget it, Jesus is the one that said, I'm the good shepherd, I'll be your provision, trust me. Because the trial itself doesn't make us better, being near him does. So James continues in verse 13, when tempted, which again is at its core, temptation to believe that we don't need God. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. That's rough. And there is a death that can result from a lack of wisdom, poor decision-making, either by me or by others. And I can paint that picture a thousand different ways. But again, at its core, the death that is most painful is that which separates us from God, separates us from others, and separates us from being the people that God has called us to be. And there is a death that comes from getting what we want and recognizing when we get there it's not what we need. Remember, James said, blessed is the one who perseveres in trial because having stood the test, that person receives the crown of life. The crown of life is not God dropping us off in in this place where we never need him again, where we have all the jewels that we need. Thanks a lot, God. Appreciate it. High five. See you later. The crown of life is the wisdom of knowing we're created to need him will always need him, and he will supply enough. That's why James concludes this section this way. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father, a clear reference to manna, how he fed the Israelites in the desert when there was no other way. A God who doesn't change, 
like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through his word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I'll say it again. We can't and don't graduate from our need for God, though we are tempted to believe we will. And the trial, regardless of of the challenge or the circumstance, is this question, am I going to trust him to lead me through the rocks and the terrain and the rough times and the challenges? Am I going to trust him to lead me? Perseverance is as much about position as it is provision. And ultimately, that is at the root. The the answer to that question, am I going to allow him to lead? Am I going to learn enough about who he is that I can move forward trusting him? Ultimately, that's at the root of how we will respond to every single trial and every single temptation. Will we seek his wisdom or not? Will we say, God, I got this one. I'll figure it out on my own or not? It's going to be how we order our lives and how we move through our days. Every decision will move us closer to the shepherd or it will move us further away. That's just how it works. So James opens this book and he says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials. How's that? Well, there's a joy in realizing we're designed to be near him. That we're designed to come back again and again and again to him. It's what we need. Because wisdom isn't knowing enough to say, God, I got this. Thanks for all the information I'll ever need about anything. Wisdom is knowing that we will always need God. And he'll never leave us alone in that need. So maybe you walked in this morning and you were in this space of having enough. Maybe you have enough time and enough patience and enough hope and enough income and enough future out there. Maybe you have more than enough of that. The temptation might be for you to believe that I don't need him. I've gotten everything I need from him. I've got a green field of alfalfa. But the charge, the challenge The invitation is to trust the shepherd that he wants to continue to guide you on. And along the way, there may actually be some rough times in the middle. If you follow him, it won't move you away from everything that's challenging. Sometimes it'll move you toward challenge. Maybe you're here and you feel more like you're in a a desolate hillside A space of waiting and wanting and not knowing when it's all going to get better and you're just desperate for change. Trust the shepherd. That's the invitation. And so as we ponder this together, as we ponder this idea of where have there been places maybe that, that I have gone it alone, maybe not everywhere, but maybe in some places, a very appropriate response is to, to ask, where do I need to turn? Where do do I need to maneuver my direction? Where do I need to come back home? Where do I need to follow the shepherd? And so that's why we're going to close our service by taking communion together because communion is this really beautiful place where we can remember together. We can remember that anytime we move away from Jesus and we say, oh my gosh, what what should I do now? Where, Where should I head next What should I put my trust in any time we ask that question? The door is wide open to follow the Savior, the one who who provides for us, who said, I'll be your direction, who sets a table for us by his sacrifice. When we're tempted to believe that we graduate from God, his sacrifice for our sake to receive the nourishment we need, 
It's placed right in front of us. That's why the communion table is so important. That's why we'll take communion together every week this summer. Because it's important that we remember there is pardon for where we fell short yesterday, but there is power to live today and tomorrow as we ought. The invitation is to trust the shepherd. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the challenge of of this book of James that we're jumping into. But I pray that as we jump into the very practical nature of this book, that we wouldn't race past the foundation of how we make the decisions that we make. That we would realize that the greatest wisdom isn't knowing everything so that we no longer need you, God. The greatest wisdom comes in knowing we always will need you and we can trust you. So I pray that as we take a moment to consider maybe where we've decided to go it alone, I pray that you would remind us that there is always a way back. It's through your love and your sacrifice and closeness with you that we become more fully who we are created to be. And that is an invitation that always stands and is represented very clearly in the table that we're about to share together. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll do that together. We're going to take communion together, and uh, here, here's how it'll work. Um, and it's important to know that, that this, is, this is God's table, not Summit's table. So if you trust Jesus, which is what we've been talking about, it's not knowing everything, but it's just knowing enough to trust him with what comes next. If you trust him for the reason he said he came, for the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of your life, all the wisdom you'll need, then you're welcome at this table. And it's, what we're doing is we're remembering Jesus as he invited us to. On the night of his betrayal, he sat with his friends and had one last meal together. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, it's for you. I'm giving myself to you. And then he takes a, a cup and he says, this is my blood, is shed for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. What he's inviting us to remember is that he's trustworthy. And if we trust him, it will set the foundation of every decision that we make. And so the band will begin to play. I really encourage you to reflect on those moments where maybe trust has slipped or trust in self has, has dominated. And, and you can ask forgiveness, and there's always forgiveness available. And then you can come to the table. And as you do, you'll take a piece of bread. And there's a gluten-free option over here if that's helpful. you take a piece of bread, and someone will say, the body of Christ broken for you. And they'll say that because it's true for you. And you'll take that bread, and you'll dip it in the cup of wine or juice. And they'll say, the, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you'll eat and they'll say those things because they're absolutely true for you. You are loved that much. It's important that you remember that in these moments. So as you're ready, come forward and take communion with us.